All right, good morning. Let's go ahead and turn to Romans 8. We're going to start verse 16 today. We're kind of overlapping by a couple verses uh, from last week to kind of show you the transition that Paul is making in Romans chapter 8. It's kind of helpful to be able to teach, in particular, this passage back to back because of the themes that Paul is trying to help us to understand. So we're going to start in Romans 8, verse 16. I'm going to read through verse 30. So Paul writes, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience." Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose." For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And though those whom He predestined, He also called. Those who He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, just to give you kind of a recap and show you what Paul is doing, We've talked uh, mostly about misconceptions about the gospel, that what Paul is trying to do in Romans 6, Romans 7, is he's trying to correct misunderstandings about how we are to practically understand how the gospel changes the life of a Christian. And so he's addressing uh, misunderstandings about grace. May we, should we continue to sin that grace should abound? Well, by no means. But then he also addresses the law, and misunderstandings about the law, trying to help us to understand that we are no longer under the law, but we have been divorced from it. But that even though we've been divorced from it, it's not that we uh, can go on just doing whatever we want, but that the law is actually fulfilled in us. And so at this morning, by this point, if you feel a little confused, all right, Paul, then what, what does it look like? I think that would make sense. Because he still has not yet gotten to the punchline. Last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the Holy Spirit's role is to apply the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to your life. That not only are we justified by the sovereign uh, act 
of, of Jesus, his death and resurrection, but that sanctification is itself a sovereign work of God in our life, that we are being perfected by the work of the Holy Spirit, and all that leads us to today, all right? So, really, our question this morning is, all right, Paul, if it's not this and it's not that, then what is it? And Paul gives us this unbelievable uh, metaphor for us to kind of hold on to this morning, and it's one of my favorite aspects of the gospel that usually does not always get talked about, and this is what it is. You are sons of God. If you know Jesus Christ this morning, if you've been saved, redeemed by His death and resurrection, that makes you a son of God. Now, I I, I want that to sink in this morning. I don't want that to just bounce off your ears and say, yeah, 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 I think I've heard that before at some point. But to really let that sink in, not the least of which is who else do we call the Son of God? Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying is you are also a son of God. To the point where he's actually going to say, that makes you brothers, not only with one another, but with Jesus himself. Your status has been completely reversed from what you were. And not only are you sons, but you've been adopted as sons. And so he uses this metaphor of adoption. Now, there's a few things before we really uh, get into the text that you need to know about adoption, particularly in the Roman culture, right? Paul is writing to the Romans, and obviously he's going to have in mind what they must have had in mind as they heard the word adoption. So again, I just want to read real quickly to show you a few couple places. Uh, He writes this. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Well, how does that happen? Back up to verse 14. He says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit has now given you adoption as sons. You've been adopted by God Himself. In the Roman culture, adoption had less to do with the familial attachment as it had to do with inheritance. That anyone who is adopted by somebody else automatically, all of the rights and privileges of the inheritance that that person had now were given to the adopted person. But what's more amazing is that in the Roman culture, A lot of times, the adoption had less to do with the adoptee. In other words, the person being adopted actually had more to do with the adopter. That the adopter, the person who is doing the adopting, had more to gain by adopting someone than the adoptee themselves. To the point in the Roman culture, you actually saw this phenomenon where they didn't just adopt children. They would adopt older people. Why do you think they would do that? Come on, let's be awake this morning. That's right, for their assets. Bill's thinking. You go find an old man who's rich, and you adopt him. You take care of him at the end of his life. He dies. Your family. Now you get his assets. So Paul's using this phenomenon to help us to understand something about God, that God, in adopting us, two things happen. One... 
we are suddenly given all the familial rights that God has given Jesus Himself. Okay? That the inheritance that comes from God Himself is now ours. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that God is the one who gets the glory. God is the adopter, is the one who gets the glory. All right? And the adoption, our adoption as sons this morning is going to show us four things about who we are. We're going to try to do this as quickly as we can. Four things about who we are and how that changes us, what our adoption as sons, our sonship, gives us. First is that we are children of God. That's very important to understand, and Mark has preached on that a couple weeks ago, that we are children of God. Second, Christ is our brother. We suffer with Christ. That not only is suffering... Now, because you're a Christian, not part of the Christian life. Oh, you're a Christian, so you will not suffer. No, it's the opposite. You are a Christian. Christ is your brother. You're going to suffer. We suffer with Christ. That's number two. Number three, we are helped by the Spirit. We're helped by the Spirit. And four, we are heirs of the promise, okay? All right, so first, what does our adoption give to us? We are children of God. That's number one. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God, and so we are. Galatians 4, verse 4, For when the fullness of time had come, God had sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, You are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir, according to God. Before we get to our next verse, I want to read you. The reason why Paul is using this metaphor is he's juxtaposing it against a different one. If you remember, what he says is that under the law, we were like slaves. And not really slaves to the law so much as slaves to our own sin, that we are held in bondage by it, that... I mean, if you remember the end of Romans 7, that the very things that we do, we don't even want to do them sometimes. Why? Because we're held captive by it. And so Paul is saying, you are no longer a slave. You're given a different identity. You are no longer a slave. You are a son. You have been set free. And you are the very son of God. And perhaps my favorite verse on adoption is Ephesians 1 verse 5. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Okay. At the end, this morning, if we have time, we're going to talk a little bit about that word again, predestination. It's a word that pops up a lot in our church, and rightly so as Presbyterians. Although many people who come to our church don't always realize or really know what we believe about that word. And it's a word that's contentious. It's a word that people argue about. It's a word that divides um, the Christian church, capital C, and sometimes even divides uh, lowercase c churches, local churches. This morning, predestination, I want you to know, is an incredible gift. 
Because it is us being predestined in love that ultimately is the cause of our becoming sons and getting an inheritance that is, should not be ours, but also is the reason that God gets glory. And let me show you what I mean. Paul says, In love He predestined us for adoptions of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace. The reason why I know that predestination should not be contentious is because of two very important words before he says that we were predestined. In love. And I don't want us to just blaze by that this morning. What does that mean? That means that God loved you before you became a Christian. God loved you before you became a Christian. God loved you before you ever did anything good whatsoever. God loved you before you did anything bad. So often I think we have this misconception about the death of Christ that we think, well, God the Father is real mad at us. And because He's mad at us and because He's angry, that means that He hates us. Now, don't get me wrong, we know very well, and we've already talked about it, that the wages of sin is death. That those who break the law must, by the justice of God, incur His wrath. But what Paul is saying here is God does not hate you. The death of Jesus Christ did not suddenly change God's mind about you. No, it's God actually sent His Son Jesus because He already had His mind made up about you. And his mind is this, he loves you. Because he loved you, he sent his son. Not, well, now he loves you because his son died. No, because he already loved you, he has sent his son Jesus to die for you on the cross. Because he loved you before you had a past. Right? Before you committed any kind of sin, he loved you. Before that moment, or over time, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of your heart and began to teach you and illuminate your heart to the work of Christ on the cross, His death and resurrection for the forgiveness of your sins. God loved you. He loved you before of all of that. Why does that matter? Because that should be the number one thing that defines your life. What does it mean to be a child of God? It means to be loved. Unconditionally. And so this morning, men, I wonder... Do you know that you are loved and do you live that way? And those of you who are dads this morning and know a little bit about what it means to actually love a child, for my wife and I this morning to be up at four in the morning because our eight-month-old is coughing, and although we are groggy and maybe not happy about it, it doesn't change the fact that I love my little girl just as much, if not more, in that moment than when she's got a smile on her face in the middle of the day. You are a son of God. That means you are a child. You're his child. That means he loves you unconditionally. And that love has more to do about his character and who he is than it has to do with who you are. In fact, it has everything to do with who he is and nothing to do with who you are. He loves you because that's who he is. God is love. And for you to be his child means now that you are the recipient 
of that kind of love. Now, he didn't just say we're sons, he also says we're adopted. Well, what does that mean? And real briefly, um, some of you may have heard this story if you've heard me teach before, but it's one of the best examples I can think of what adoption looks like. After college, I spent a year uh, working at a church, and then before I transitioned uh, to move to Dallas to work at a different church, not this one, I uh, decided to go join two of my buddies. Uh, I was actually um, pre-med in diapers. Uh, my dad's a doctor, and so as his son, I was going to be in the family business. My sister is now a doctor. I-, I went to doctor camp in high school. That's incredibly dorky, so if you're not laughing at that, you should. Um, and I went with two of my buddies who were also, at a very young age, we thought, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go med school together, and this is what we're going to do. And those two guys, by the way, today are doctors. Uh, one of them is the chief of emergency medicine already. This guy, this guy, uh, he's amazing. He picked emergency medicine because it's the most, um, I don't know what the word is, intense. Uh, volunteers to go on helicopters and uh, will suit up with a SWAT team in Cincinnati. Um, pretty, pretty cool guy, actually. And the other guy, uh, because he's so uh, dumb, decided, well, before I go to med school at Johns Hopkins, I'm going to go to Yale and get my master's in public health, which is what he did. And part of his dissertation was to study the effects of knowledge and education in sub-Saharan Africa. And so I went with these two knuckleheads and uh, a couple other people with a uh, really not even put together yet uh, NGO in the middle of Cameroon in the jungle uh, for a summer. And we were doing public health. And I was the only Christian, pretty much. Um, And it was a blast. I had a great time. But it was some of the hardest things that I've ever seen. And when I got back, uh, my friends asked me, did you you enjoy it? And and I said, well, no. I mean, it was some of the worst things I've ever seen. But I would go back in a heartbeat, and that's still true. One of the hardest things that we saw is that the village that we were in, the nearest clinic of any kind, was about three miles up a mountain. And so on our way... Uh, one day to uh, one of the other villagers, uh, we caught something in our eye as we were walking down the path, and we found a little girl, about 10 years old, lying face down in a ditch. This girl had been abandoned by her family because they could no longer care for her. She had epilepsy. She had uncontrollable seizures, and because her family could no longer deal with her ailment, They literally left her unconscious in a ditch. What do you do with that? And so we found a wheelbarrow and wheeled her three miles up a mountain to the nearest clinic to try to get her some kind of help. Men, that's what we are. Before Christ, we are abandoned children laying face down in a ditch But the difference is, she didn't want to be abandoned. I think for us, sometimes we wish we were. That what makes sin so heinous is that we would actually prefer to be orphans in our sin. We don't realize how bad it is in the ditch of our sin, and yet God in His love predestined us. He came out of nowhere and He picked us up out of the ditch Not only did he clean us off, not only did he heal us, 
But he, he went even further and he said, you are now my child. You are now my child. You are now mine. I have adopted you. We are children of God. Second, we suffer with Christ. We suffer with Christ. Not only are we children, but we, are suffer with, we suffer with Christ. Verse 18, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul's point is that with all of our trials and difficulties and all the suffering that we see, like I saw in Africa, or that we endure ourselves, none of it's going to last forever. And not only is it not going to last forever, but it it does not even compare to the glory that is to come. That the suffering of this life is so temporary. And what is to come is an eternity of glory. And if we can just begin to somehow wrap our hearts and minds around that, it would change the way we live. Right? That you are actually an eternal person. Did you know that? You are going to live forever. The question is, will it be in heaven or will it be in hell? I know that's harsh this morning, but it's true. You are an eternal person. Do you, do you think that way or do you think just for the here and now? Does the way that you live orient itself in such a way that you think, well, right here in front of me is all I have. And listen, I know what that's like. I think above all else, one of the things that makes that the hardest is just being busy. And you get in this rut, and you're just doing the best you can to go to one meeting to the next meeting. And you've, you've got such tunnel vision on the here and now, and Paul's trying to say, hey, this is not all there is. The sufferings of this life cannot even compare to an eternity of glory that awaits us as the sons of God. And so he says this in verse 19, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. What is he saying, real briefly? Not just us, not only have we been affected by sin, but Paul is saying something incredible. What he's saying is that all of creation has been affected by sin. Everything in this world because of sin is now broken. Everything. Everything. And so creation... Being fallen is also waiting for our revealing as being sons of God. In other words, creation itself, like us, is waiting for heaven. It's waiting for Christ's return. It's waiting for the consummation of all things. Why? Well, because just as sin came into the world and affects us, and we suffer from our own sin, we suffer in our sin because of the sin that we do to ourselves, our own bodies, the sin that we do to others, Sometimes suffering in this life honestly just begins with people, does it not? So whatever brokenness that you carry into this room, maybe for you as you think about being a son or being a father, you're thinking of your own relationship with your own father and how broken it honestly truly is. And so the idea of sonship for you is honestly a very difficult thing to think about with any positive emotion whatsoever. Sometimes suffering happens because of people. We inflict suffering on one another. But Paul is also saying suffering also happens because of the suffering of creation. Right? He says this. uh, He says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope 
that creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. Well, where does he get this? I want you to remember the curse in Genesis chapter 3. It says, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your, of your wife and have eaten of the tree I've commanded of you, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Not only are you cursed, Adam, but now the ground is cursed. And we see that all too clearly every single day. Whether it is just the reality that we suffer with our own bodies, sickness, disease, cancer, that we get sick, or the fact that there are natural disasters almost everywhere you look if you turn on the TV, and you think, where does that come from? Why doesn't God stop that? Why does He allow a typhoon to wipe out an island? Because creation was subjected to futility. Creation itself has been subjected to futility. Every natural disaster, every cancer, every disease, all of it is there to give us a reminder. Sin has come into the world, and it has made the world a very broken place. And so we suffer. Now the difference for us as Christians, from a skeptic, is that suffering affects us all. Suffering affects us all. There's a movement, actually, in Africa. If you think about some of the most horrific suffering you could possibly see, there is a movement in Africa which makes sense why it's catching on, called the prosperity gospel. That exists here, too. But it is growing like wildfire over there. Why? Because it teaches that if you become a Christian, then you will now have health and you will now have wealth. So you who are in poverty, you who are stricken with illness... Become a Christian and it'll all go away. Now, there's a couple problems with that. One is that it's just not true. <laughs> and that makes, honestly, those people to think, well, then God's a liar. The second, as Paul this morning is wanting us to see that suffering is actually a blessing. Now, I don't want to say that lightly. And I actually probably would not say it if I was making it up myself but I'm not. It comes straight from the Scriptures. And the reason why suffering is a blessing has to do with your family resemblance. You are now adopted as sons of God, and that means you now share in the suffering of your older brother, Jesus Christ. And as you suffer this side of heaven, you come to know what it is that Christ did for you, that He suffered exceedingly more than you will ever suffer. And as you share in His sufferings, you come to know the depths of His love for you. And so in this way, suffering teaches us about a couple things. First, suffering teaches us what sin is. Suffering teaches us what sin is. There's an old quote, it goes something like this, that sometimes a sickbed will teach us more than a sermon ever can. That it's, it's in our moments of deepest suffering that we tend to learn the most. Why? Because that's when we're most dependent. That's when we're stripped of everything as men that we think we can do on our own. And we're forced to say, okay, God, I give up. Where are you? But more than that, it teaches us that 
in our sin and its relation to the suffering that is in this world that we are helpless. We're helpless. We're helpless in our sin in the same way that you are helpless on a sickbed. Or you are helpless when you're staring down the eye of a storm. In the same way, you cannot overcome your own sin any more than you can overcome a hurricane. Suffering teaches us how helpless we are in our sin, but also, number two, suffering teaches us about the cross. Peter writes this in his letter, 1 Peter 4, verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you. I love that. Peter's saying, don't, it's coming. So don't be surprised when a fiery trial comes to you. As though something strange were happening to you. But then he says this. And this is why I couldn't come up with this if I tried. And yet, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Peter tells us this. He says, rejoice. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. How can he say that? Rejoice as you share in the sufferings of Christ, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Suffering teaches us about the cross. It teaches us about the cross. It teaches us about what Jesus did when He died to overcome sin and death. That sin, the effects of our sin, the way that we hurt ourselves and one another, but also death. He overcame death. In other words, once we get to glory... This glory that Paul is talking about that is to be revealed, there will be no cancer, no more disease, no more heart attacks, no more hypertension, right? No more pills that you have to take every day. All of it has been conquered. It teaches us about the cross. So suffering, we could say, now as a Christian is a gift. So the question is, suffering is going to hit us all. The difference is, as Christians, we now understand where it comes from and who the one is who bore our suffering on the cross for us. This is where we're going to end this morning. Uh, Just a couple things. We're helped by the Spirit and we are heirs by the promise. Well, real quickly, we talked about the Holy Spirit last week. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, by the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. And and this morning, one of the things I want you to talk about your tables is what makes being helped so hard for us as men? What makes that so humiliating to be helped? Part of understanding how the gospel works in your life is to understand you need help. And the Holy Spirit has come to help you. That Jesus himself said that it is better for me to go away so that the helper, that's what he calls him, the Holy Spirit, the helper would come to you. How does the Holy Spirit help? The Holy Spirit helps you by praying for you. Isn't that amazing? The Holy Spirit is praying for you right now. Is interceding for you. He's praying in ways you don't even know how to pray. As you pray for things that you don't even need, the, prayer, the Holy Spirit prays for the things you really need. And all of this leads us that we are heirs, the last thing. We are heirs of the promise, verse 29. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And whom He predestined, He also called. Those who He called, He also justified. And those who He justified, 
he also glorified. Now, we don't have time to unpack this amazing verse, but it goes all the way back to what I read in Ephesians 1, verse 5. Part of being a son of God is to recognize that God has loved you your whole life. Even before you had life, he loved you. That you were predestined. He foreknew you. He created you. Fearfully and wonderfully made are you. And in love, he predestined you. And that means that everything after that necessarily must happen. In other words, you will be justified. You will be adopted. Right? You will be glorified. And so to know that part of you being a son of God means you will be glorified. How do you know that? Because the inheritance in heaven has been stored up for all of God's children. If you've been adopted, you are now an heir. And all that is God's is now yours in Christ Jesus. Why? Because you now bear the family resemblance. Christ is your older brother. And you are now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be conformed more and more into the image of God's Son. More and more into the image of God's one true capital S Son, and more and more into the image of the Son that God has made you to be. And so how are you living? Are you living in light of eternity? Are you living in light of the glory that is to be revealed? Do you recognize that you have an inheritance that's been stored up for you? And that you're an heir? Or are you living as if all that is in front of us is all that we have? And so you better get yours now. Because it's all up to you. The beauty of the gospel is that you are an heir. An heir of the promise. And so I'm going to leave you with this uh, passage as I send you to your tables. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes as though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of, jo- of Jesus Christ. At the beginning I said that ultimately God is the one who gets the glory in our adoption. And that's so true. Because if you truly believe this this morning, as you struggle to understand your identity in Christ, then it will move you to worship. To thank God for what He has done for you by sending His Son Jesus to die for you and to worship Him and to love Him as the Father who loves you unconditionally. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this morning. We pray, Lord, that as we go to our tables now and try to discern what it means that we are sons of God, I pray that that reality and that identity would change the way that we live. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.